Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you have joined us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, let's start with the good. Um, This is a pretty low bar to clear, but good for NPR and the Atlantic to do this. Turns out looting's bad. Uh, Apparently, they didn't know that for a while, but they're admitting it now. And I guess any little concession towards sanity is good. Uh, This is from Mediaite. NPR public editor Kelly McBride criticized her own media organization's recent controversial interview titled In Defense of Looting, following backlash over the piece, admitting that it, quote, did not serve NPR's audience and was harmful on two levels. They were talking with far-left author Vicki Osterweil, and we'll get to her in just a second. But McBride says, while I understand it's an interview and the views presented may not represent NPR, should NPR interviewers not perform fact-checking when an interview is saying blatantly incorrect things? The interviewer should have been prepared for the author to say known falsehoods and refute them, or at least the transcript should be updated to not spread them. Uh, the Atlantic also is saying that, uh, you know, if you want uh, your country to be in cinders, looting's the right tool to do that. Here's what Osterweil actually believes. The so-called United States was founded in cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. That violence produced our current system, particularly its property relations, and looting is a remedy for that sickness. Quote, looting rejects the legitimacy of ownership rights and property, the moral injunction to work for a living, and the justice of law and order. Ownership of things, not just people, is innately structurally white supremacist, Jim. So the fact that you own your car or your house or anything else that you've bought is the same as owning people, apparently. I think the bigger question might be why NPR or anyone else would give someone like this any airtime or any ink. What do you make of this? Yeah, well, first of all, let's note that Graham Wood over at The Atlantic is by no stretch of the imagination a conservative, a Republican, a Trump supporter, or, or anything like that. He's written very critically of Trump and the Republican Party lots of times. I don't think this is someone who has any uh, hostility to Black Lives Matter. You know, this, this is somebody who just who actually read the book, read through it and came to the conclusion that this is uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And in fact, not just that, like just morally inverted and very destructive. And that kind of brings us around to NPR. The NPR's ombudsman's job is to look at what the public radio service is doing and kind of ask, you know, are, are we doing a good job? Where are we making mistakes? How can we do better? Um, but man, oh man, this is, you know, this is about as stinging a rebuke as you can find. She, she, you know, the public editor did not uh, quibble any words here. You know, publishing false information leaves the audience misinformed. On top of that, news consumers are watching closely to see who is challenged and who isn't. In this case, a book author with a radical point of view far to the left was allowed to spread false information. Casual observers might conclude that NPR is more interested in fact-checking conservative viewpoints than liberal viewpoints, or possibly that bias on the part of NPR staff interferes with their judgment when spotting suspect information. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people could come to that conclusion, you know. And I don't know how much uh, a, a really stinging rebuke from uh, Kelly McBride is going to get NPR to change its behavior. But I assume everybody at NPR would really rather not get called out by the ombudsman. 
for doing a piss poor job and for damaging the reputation of the institution and for undermining informing their listeners. Um, you know, I don't know if this is going to cause any uh, uh, changing of how things work there, but it is kind of, I, I think, in keeping with this, you know, sudden shift from, oh, there's no rioting, you paranoid conservatives, to, yes, there is terrible rioting and it's Trump's fault, that uh, there's been this massive shift in, in the thinking of a lot of folks who consider themselves left of center or not conservative. And it's like, hey, the conservatives have a point here. This book is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs nonsense. And one of the things you kind of, I, I think, is an important point. Earlier in the week in a corner post, I'd made the point that Every once in a while, the mainstream media does hurt Democrats, inadvertently. But you think about it, they have very different incentives. Your typical Democratic governor, senator, or Joe Biden, you want to win the most votes you can. So you generally want to avoid controversy. You generally don't want to be too antagonistic and offend or uh, stir up opposition amongst people who could be persuaded to vote for you. And so their, their whole objective is either avoid controversy or hide what they really think and just come across as these good, sensible, moderate, you know, normal people. If you're a lefty commentator, whether it's in the media or you're a, a you know, activist group or, or you're, there's a very noisy marketplace of ideas and the best way to get attention is to be as controversial as possible. Yeah, you know, we generally would not have heard of Vicki Osterweil if she had not written a book called, you know, In Defense of Looting. This is, you know, but now here's the thing. We don't like her. We're not agreeing with her. We're not you know, persuaded by her. But boy, she definitely got our attention. But we're even more aware of her because NPR said, huh, let's do an interview with this author. This is a really fascinating idea. Except here's the problem. It's not a fascinating idea. It's a destructive idea. It's a terrible idea. And NPR made the choice. And if you're going to give any attention to a, a book like this, what Graham Wood in The Atlantic did saying, no, this is not just nonsense. This is dangerous and destructive nonsense is the type of response that is, I would argue, essential to keeping a functioning civilized society. So uh, good for both of these groups. I don't know if it'll lead to any sustainable. It's always kind of interesting when you see lefty media recognizing, hey, we really stepped in it here. We need to take some sort of action, uh, to a, a makeup call, so to speak, in order to minimize the damage. This is the second day in a row where insane ideas have been put out there for the public's consumption. And it's only when there's backlash that the institution says, oh, you know what? Yeah, we didn't really mean that. I yeah. noticed there wasn't an NPR reaction to this the way there was a New York Times reaction to Tom Cotton's op-ed. I mean, like this, this is where, you know, you and I were kind of you know, chuckling the other day. We're like, nobody around the table says, hey, this is not a good idea to say we should get rid of the, the Washington Monument. It says something about NPR, but at no point in the process did any editor or anybody who was involved in bringing things to the listeners said, hey, are, are we sure we want to write this kind of really soft focus, friendly interview with a book called In Defense of Looting? Couldn't that create the impression that we at NPR are okay with looting? And we have a large office in Washington where people know where it is. We don't want people to loot that, so maybe we shouldn't encourage that sort of thing. Like, at no point do these types of breaks that are supposed to exist in big institutions of media, at no point did they kick in. And this is where, you know, the guys in pajamas, the bloggers, uh, without those layers of fact checkers, somehow end up doing better than the big, you know, well-funded institutions. Taxpayer-funded institutions, for that matter. Jim, you tweeted it out for a different reason earlier this week, but this also reminds me of the uh, George Costanza moment where uh, <laughs> he was caught uh, having relations with the cleaning woman at his office, and he said, was that wrong? 
Should I not have done that? You know, if someone had just told me that that sort of conduct was frowned upon, we never would have had this author on who wants to destroy private property. You know, it's just, you just got to let me know. And that gift really is the, the theme of the week, isn't it? <laughs> Foreshadowing our crazy martini. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's take a look at our bad martini. Now for that, we go to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, no stranger to the bad martini. He was responding recently to President Trump's musing that lawless cities, quote unquote, including New York, maybe ought to lose some federal funding if they're not going to uh, do what's necessary to keep law and order, as Trump would like to uh, phrase it. Uh, And here is Andrew Cuomo's response to... uh, the idea of President Trump coming back to New York City. He can't come back to New York. He can't. He's going to walk down the street in New York. Forget bodyguards. He better have an army if he thinks he's going to walk down the street in New York. From the point of view of New York City, this has been the worst president in history. Look, the best thing he did for New York City was leave. Good riddance. Let him go to Florida. Be careful not to get COVID. Trump should just stay in Florida and try not to get COVID. He's just still on this fictional victory lap, uh, despite overseeing the worst response to COVID in the country. Uh, But Jim, the idea that Trump would need an army to come back to New York, uh, first of all, that sounds kind of menacing. Secondly, I love your reaction to this, so I won't spoil it for anybody. Yeah, I know. Fact check. The commander-in-chief of the United States does indeed have an army, so... (laughs) Trump is in the clear. Hunky-dory, head on on there if you like. Separately, the other good joke is, indeed, Governor, it does require an army to travel safely in New York these days, thanks to you and Bill de Blasio. Besides the fact that this gets a little uncomfortably close to threatening the life of the President of the United States, people may recall, I believe it was Jesse Helms who said either, you know, when Obama was running or shortly after he was elected president, something along the lines, the president shouldn't come to my state he wouldn't be safe or something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was along those lines. And Jesse Helms got rebuked for that. And you should rebuke that. I think, you know, there are reasons the Secret Service will like perhaps knock on your door, even if you're jokingly refer to the assassination of the President of the United States. They have to take that stuff seriously. It is a particularly toxic idea to have elected officials to indicate uh, that violence towards the President of the United States would be acceptable. I think though, kind of continuing this theme amongst all of our martinis, Greg, Look, Andrew Cuomo did a really lousy job in the coronavirus pandemic. I know he wants to convince everybody that's a big deal that the curve went down. Yes, that's what happens when lots of people get it really early on and you end up having lots of people dying, particularly elderly people in senior citizens' homes, in nursing homes, in assisted living facilities who are infected because the state had a policy of sending people who were recovering but still contagious back into those assisted living homes, spreading the disease further. It is very easy to not to lose sense from the uh, coverage of, oh, you know, the South is getting hit. You know, they did have a very big, you know, outbreak of cases, uh, particularly this summer. But even like, you know, the worst case, like if you want to say, ah, Florida, Florida has roughly one third the deaths 
that New York State had. Uh, Texas has a little more, is a, the ratio is a little, you know, a little less than one, a little more than one third. Uh, California has, uh, is right around where Texas is. You know, New Jersey is the second highest in the, in the country right now. I'm looking at worldometers with 16,068 deaths. New York State has 33,000 total deaths from coronavirus so far. And this number is only going to go up. Thankfully, it's gone down. You know, the, the rate of each day has gone down significantly in New York State. But it is so far ahead. Now, is some of that population density? I, you know, yeah. Uh, but even then, I ran the numbers. Like, you, have to, you can put together the bottom 30 states before you get more deaths than New York State has all by itself. Uh, New York State has roughly 5.86% of the U.S. population. They have 17% of the U.S. deaths from the coronavirus. New York has a really lousy job there. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, certain publications, uh, both uh, conservative publications, and also I think a lot of the local New York press has covered Andrew Cuomo pretty tough on this. And they recognize that this is like one of the grand gaslighting efforts of all time for Andrew Cuomo to insist that he and his state government did a terrific job here. When you don't get called out on this, what you, what you have been missing are the national media outside of New York. Uh, to really say, no, Cuomo loused this up royally. He did a bad job. He should be hanging his head in shame, not marketing posters about what a terrific job he did, and you should not be horsing around with giant Q-tips with his brother on CNN primetime and stuff like that. We haven't seen that. I think that as politicians get more good press that is undeserved, as they suffer fewer consequences for making bad decisions that have bad consequences for their constituents, but not so much bad consequences for them, that, that simply kind of feeds the hubris. It only feeds this mentality that I am uh, metaphorically bulletproof. Everything I do is golden. I am the magic governor. And, and like King Midas, everything I touch turns to gold. No, no, you're like King Midas in reverse, as they said on The Sopranos. Turns to something else. Uh, Cuomo really needs to be rebuked by this. He's not getting rebuked. And as a result of that, I think you're only going to see him get more and more outrageous in his statements because there's never been a point where somebody has said, oh, Governor Cuomo, you went too far here. You are not the hero you think you are. You've done a terrible job. And we in the media are now going, are now going to hold you accountable. Jim, I don't know if you saw the poll recently where in New York City specifically, not statewide, Andrew Cuomo is still absurdly popular, but Bill de Blasio is pretty much dead even. 45%, I think, approval, 46% disapproval, which might mean that since he's up for re-election next year, and I assume he's so arrogant he's going to try to run again, that he might actually be beatable. I have no idea who would be a credible uh, upgrade uh, in New York City, since it would have to be a Democrat, I assume, at this point. But uh, the fact that the people have not been completely snowed over when it comes to the incompetence of Bill de Blasio is a, a little bit of a silver lining in all this, I would think. You know, Greg, right now for New York City, I don't live there, but I, I still, you know, have roots there, still have friends who live there, still have family in the area. I'd really rather that that city got itself turned around in better hands. So right now, I would prefer as mayor any other human being in the, in the city of New York or any groundhog. <laughs> No wonder he's been going after the groundhog population. It's a political threat. We just didn't notice it at the time. We just thought he was clumsy. But no, nope. it's, all, it's all a sinister plot. All right. Let's talk about our crazy martini now. It's a follow-up to uh, yesterday. Nancy Pelosi not taking the L on Salongate in San Francisco when it would just go away. 
Instead, Nancy Pelosi has decided that she's the victim here. She's not the hypocrite. She's the victim. She just trusted the salon owner to be following the rules and doing things right. She had no idea that she was flouting the COVID restrictions in San Francisco. Here's her excuse. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times. And that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time and that we can set up that time, I trusted that. As it turns out, it was a setup. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. And that's all I'm going to say on that. All right, Jim. So just as we suspected, Nancy Pelosi is the victim. Uh, We now have a statement via a lawyer from the person that actually did her hair saying that the salon owner had approved this and that the salon owner didn't like Pelosi. And and so uh, there's death threats now against the salon owner. I mean, we we knew that her life was going to get destroyed as a result of this. I didn't necessarily think it was going to happen this quickly. But uh, when, when Nancy feels wrong, the knives come out pretty quickly. But uh, what do you think of her channeling her inner Marion Barry that she was set up here? Yeah, we can't quote Marion Barry directly. <laughs> most, most listeners probably remember the infamous utterance from the D.C. mayor after being caught in a hotel room with crack cocaine. Uh, you know, here's the thing. She could have said, and she kind of alluded to this in the first statement. It was the subsequent statement yesterday where she really laid out the they're out to get me uh, comments that really are more a little more Alex Jonesy than I think she intended to go here. Yesterday in the Corner Post, I, I, every time I write about, if you've watched Nancy Pelosi, you see a lot of statements. You're like, what is she saying? What is she doing? Wait, what? And you know, if you're like, oh, you know, Jim, this is just your partisanship showing. Look, I would, I would ask any, you know, listener to this. We have some left of center listeners. We have some moderate listeners. Just, just think about all the things that are coming allegedly from Nancy Pelosi, the master strategist. We have this incident with the hair salon, but even before that, last week she said Joe Biden should skip the presidential debates. Really fueling all the arguments of folks on the right saying, oh, Joe Biden is senile and Biden can't handle it and all kinds of stuff. Uh, a little while before that on this podcast, we talked about her calling uh, congressional Republicans and members of the Trump administration enemies of the state. Uh, a little bit before that, uh, Deborah Burks was spreading this information. And then when asked on a, one of the Sunday shows, did she have any examples? Pelosi didn't have any examples. Um, let me go back to the, you know, this tearing up the State of the Union, um, all the shenanigans with the coronavirus relief bill, trying to put in state and local tax deductions back and uh, abortion funding, the photo op with the Kenty cloth, uh, her declaration that the police reform bill would be worthy of George Kirby's name. I think she meant George Floyd's name. Um, you know, denouncing the st- strike against Kasim Soleimani as provocative. She's made a lot of mistakes this year. And I don't think Nancy Pelosi is that master strategist. And every time I write, you know, I think she's, uh, I think she's not that great. I get a bunch of Washington journalists who cover Capitol Hill who say, oh, yes, she is, Jim. Well, managing a House majority is like herding cats. And she's a mask, you know, she's got 12 level chests in her head. And she's always, you know, I'm like, eh, I'm not so sure. I'm really not so co- not convinced that she is this. Uh, I remember holding back the articles of impeachment because she thought she had le- leverage over Mitch McConnell. Didn't work. <laughs> a lot of Nancy Pelosi's stuff doesn't work out the way she's supposed to. And one of the things, just as we were just saying a moment ago about Andrew Cuomo, when you are in a heavily, when you are in a heavily Democratic state or district, 
you can make a lot of mistakes before it starts to endanger your odds of re-election. When you represent San Francisco, you're, you're, you don't even worry about the Republican Party. You worry about some challenge to your left wing, and Nancy Pelosi has really never had any serious challenge. Most of the time, she wins with at minimum 80%. So you're talking about somebody who is effectively insulated from the reality of modern politics for almost everybody else in the House and almost everybody else in American politics. I'm sure you can find red districts that are, you know, R plus 27 or something like that. But by and large, Nancy Pelosi never has to worry about saying something stupid that could end up costing her her seat. So also that she's been leader of the Democrats in the House for well more than a decade, both as speaker and then as House Minority Leader. And she's always had this uh, everybody else needs favors from her. You're a leader. There's not a lot of House Democrats who want to say, Madam Speaker, you're doing a crappy job. Because if you do that, you're on the outs with her and you're in deep trouble. So she's probably surrounded by this constant bubble that moves with her, telling her how good her decisions are. And finally, she's 80 years old. Dad turned 80 this year. I love the man. I love my dad more than, you know, as much as anybody else in the world. I don't know if I want him controlling much more than the, the remote control to the TV. I don't know if I want him running the house. Dad's listening. He's gonna, I'm going to get in trouble for this. But anyway, so you've got an aged woman who has been surrounded by a bubble and who's immune from the normal consequences of politics. Maybe her political instincts aren't as terrific as she thinks she is and that her fan base does. And I can't help but suspect that every time I say, yeah, Nancy Pelosi steps in it a lot. And I see other Washington journalists who cover Capitol Hill and who I presume have sources in Nancy Pelosi's office, or maybe Nancy Pelosi is a source herself, and who want to stay on good terms with the person who uh, is a reliable source to them. They feel almost obligated to say, oh, no, no, she knows what she's doing. She's really good at this job. Don't trust us. I, I have this sneaking suspicion that they have this need to, to you know, support this narrative of Nancy Pelosi, master strategist. When you see this, and think about what the facts were here. Nancy Pelosi could have initially said, you know, I thought this was okay. I know they were changing the rules on September 1st. I didn't realize they said it would only be okay outside. I thought it was okay inside. I messed up. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, this, that would have diffused it pretty quickly. I, I think the, the, the next step was, you know, she didn't wear a mask. It's not bad, you know, not good. But she said, oh, do, you wear a, do you wear a mask when you shower? Well, look, most of the times when I go to the salon, if they do the hair thing, they do the little sink thing, you recline back. The woman does the, uh, the spraying with the stuff. You know, it's not like you're stepping into your shower stall or bathtub at home. So I'm not sure why you would uh, feel a need to, you know, say, oh, it's ridiculous to expect her to keep a mask on. But she chose not to take a mask on. Take the L. Take, take, get slapped on the wrist. The story will pass. By saying, oh, no, this was a conspiracy to get me, then you're extending it another day. And what Pelosi's illuminating here, it's the, the, the letter from the, uh, the hairstylist herself makes the observation, a fair observation that Nancy Pelosi does not set the rules for the city of San Francisco or the state of California. That ultimately the problems of the, if you're a hair salon owner and you're upset with the rules, you should really should be taking it up with the mayor or the governor. Speaker of the house does not set it. Now, if Nancy Pelosi thinks these rules are bad, she could call up the mayor and say, hey, these rules are bad, you should change them. She could call up Governor Gavin Newsom and say, hey, these rules are bad, you should change them. Wouldn't necessarily guarantee the rules would get changed, but there's a when you're Speaker of the House, you know, people listen, people take your call. There's a good chance you could, if you, depending on how much pressure you want to apply, you could get those rules either adjusted or, or changed in some way. But if Pelosi wants to say, you know, this is ridiculous, I should be able to get my hair done inside the house, fine. Lots of Americans feel that way. They don't like the idea that Nancy Pelosi can get it done and the rest of the people can't get it done. And a letter from the stylist said, implies or, or, or suggests the salon has secretly been pe cutting people's hair since April. 
you know what it starts reminding me when you have something that's always been legal and then all of a sudden the government says, oh, you know this thing you've been doing the whole time, we've decided it's illegal. Greg, you know what that kind of reminds me of? What's that? Prohibition. Yes. It didn't, did not go smoothly. Check your history books. We had, had a few problems there in the enforcement, right? People, and by the way, I, I continue to say, there are some people who think the lockdowns were absolutely disastrous, colossal failures, were always part of a government effort to take over and, and create this, you know, quarantine fascism. And I don't think that's it. I think it was genuinely the best option they thought they had at the time. I think most Americans wanted to follow the rules. I think most Americans wanted to do what they could to protect their fellow citizens. The only thing the lockdowns could do, though, is buy us time, right? And, and American patience was not going to last forever, particularly when you had an economic pain that was on scale that equaled or was worse than the Great Depression. So the moment you say, hey, this thing you've always done, normal human behavior, normal economic activity, yeah, we've now criminalized that. You turn, people are inevitably going to turn towards a black market. People are going to start saying, oh, I still want my haircut. I still want to do these things. I'm going to figure out a way to do this outside the eyes of the law. And you cannot criminalize normal behavior and not expect large amounts of friction. This was never a sustainable strategy. And there's still a lot of lawmakers and governors out there who are just operating in stubborn denial about this. So if Nancy Pelosi wants to come out and say, you know what? The coronavirus uh, spread levels are, are getting lower. Things are improving in California. It's time to allow people to get their hair done. Good God bless her. I think she, she went over a whole bunch of new fans if she'd done that. But she can't do that. She can't admit she, she's wrong on any particular level. She has to then invent this X-Files conspiracy. They're all trying to get, to get her to you know, catch her getting her hair done or something like that. Yes, it's the large conservative uh, underground in San Francisco that's really the problem there. <laughs> uh, two quick uh, housekeeping items before we go. First of all, just for the record, I think Mr. Garrity would do a fine job as Speaker of the House. Um, I think he would be a <laughs> severe upgrade from the current uh, office holder there. I didn't, uh, say, they did, I didn't say he wouldn't do That's not a high bar to clear. <laughs> And secondly, Jim, you mentioned that Nancy Pelosi uh, suggested a couple of days ago that Joe Biden shouldn't debate, which reminds me that yesterday we found out who the debate moderators are. Uh, it starts with Chris Wallace. Uh, then it goes to Steve Scully of C-SPAN for the second debate and then Kristen Welker of NBC News for the third one. Uh, so you and I are snubbed again, which is deeply disappointing, although not surprising. I think we could have a lot of fun with the debate. I also liked uh, your colleague Andy McCarthy's suggestion that we serve actual martinis with each question. Uh, because I think by the end of the debate, things could get very interesting. I was about to chuckle about that, uh, Greg, but all of a sudden it dawned on me, do you realize, let me do the count, 2020, 2016, 2012, 2008, 2004. Do you realize that in five of the past six presidential elections, the Republican nominee did not drink? Wow. So who's the lush? Uh, McCain, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you know, yeah, because George W. Bush gave it up. Didn't drink. Yeah. Trump says he's never drunk. And Mitt Romney's Mormon. I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he drinks. That's weird. We just, I mean, more martinis for us, but still. <laughs> there you go. Those, those darn drunken Democrats. But, yeah, know. very bored waiter. But no. uh, anyway, quite a day. Uh, we'll see what Nancy Pelosi does to wedge her foot in her mouth even further today, if anything. But uh, tomorrow's Friday. So that's good news. We'll see you then. It's an actual Friday. It's not our joke this time. So that's see you tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Also, we're always grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. Remember, you can get us also on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And 
We'll see you on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.